He is hit by loss. He acknowledges his emotional state, but immediately turns and as he is falling from the weight of his grief and pain, chooses to fall towards God. And I would argue that it's the direction of the falling, the direction of the emotion, the honest emotion expression that makes this action worship. Not like the happy, yippy, skippy, like, praise God, it's all good kind of worship that sometimes we see in church, but worship through lamentation. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Hello, my name's Ariana. Hi, thanks for the feedback, guys. Um, and there are some things that people probably know about me, that I'm a daughter, a sister, a wife, a soon-to-be mom. Um, but there's also some parts of my story that I don't often talk about. Um, I'm 32, and from this vantage point, looking back, there's... If my life was a book, there's a, a particular part that as a reader, I would have been really worried about my character. It's one of those scenes where things were just a little bit too good, like so good that it actually foreshadowed a major turn of events. So let me set the scene. Uh, I'd finished college, and I was done with my mission year in Peru. I'd come back to the home, and I was in this whirlwind of like reacclimatizing to the US, and getting packed up to come down do research before med school, that I found myself sitting next to my best friend under a Washington summer sky. And the script of that conversation is one that I can't forget. I remember looking to my friend and saying, wow, you know, we're really lucky. Nothing that bad has ever actually happened to us, huh? The irony in that statement is foreshadowing what was to come is now painfully obvious because over the course of the next few months, I lost three people who were very dear to me. My best friend's dad, my best friend who had just gotten married like a year before, and then the heaviest blow of them all, my father. The moment that I heard of his passing is still painfully sharp to me. I remember like my phone wasn't working for some reason and I just come home from a jog and my roommate at the time came up to me and in a very like bizarre manner, she was like, oh good, I'm so glad you're back. Um, don't go anywhere. Uh, your family's looking for you, they're actually driving over right now to pick you up. So they're just like, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, okay? And I was like, all right. Uh, and I went outside of the apartment complex, and I was standing on the side of the road just waiting for them to come, and I see their car pulling up, and then the door kind of like bursts open, and my sister stumbles out and just starts like kind of half walking, half falling towards me. And it took a moment for it to sink in, but what she was saying over and over was, Dad died, Dad died. 
And I, it's like an out-of-body experience started to happening where from above, I saw both of our bodies kind of like huddle together and just crumple on the ground. And it was like cars were still going by, life was moving, but it was, it was frozen in that moment. And the next few weeks that went by were actually just like a numb, hazy sort of blur, kind of like in the movies after an explosion goes off and the characters like staggering about through smoke and their ears are ringing, they can't hear what people are saying. They have an open gaping wound that's bleeding out, but it's almost like they don't realize that's on their body yet. Those three people, and particularly my dad, were three of the most God-loving, people-loving, light-giving, upright people who I had known. And I had this deep confusion and exhaustion about why, that despite teams of prayer warriors, despite asking and begging for God's interceding healing, what I didn't even know to fear had come to pass. And in one particular moment of clarity, I remember thinking that this is the emotional landscape of Job. Anguish on top of heartache, on top of exhaustion, on top of unanswered questions. So I started med school in this state of mind. I got through that first year just by pushing literally everything down during the day when I had to go to class or be in clinicals. But in the evenings, I would come back to my studio apartment and I would just try to re-enter into feeling again. And it was a time period where I watched a lot of movies. I think I looked up like every movie about family loss that I could find because it was only by immersing into like the fictional stories that I could sort of thaw out the numbness and re-enter into how I was feeling and touch base with the fact that I was like angry and sad and scared that something else was gonna happen. And I would, at the end of those movies or in the midst of them, just heavy cry to God till I fell asleep. I never talked to my upstairs neighbor, but I'm pretty sure they were like freaked out for the whole year. So it was during that time that a lot of questions not just came up, but like weighed on me emotionally and spiritually. And I was sort of dragged in by survival instinct to exploring the world of grief. And it brought me to a place too where I was wrestling with what is now my favorite and least favorite book of the Bible, Job. But before we jump into Job, I wanna ask you, what and who have you lost? How did you talk to God about that loss, or did you? How did you feel towards God after that loss? Did you feel any loss of trust that God actually wanted what was best for you? Here's another question. Have you grieved that loss, or do you know how to grieve? Because I didn't. I just like stumbled around emotionally for a while, trying not to feel it. But here's the thing. Grief is incredibly greedy, and if we don't give it time and space, it will take those things by force. So let's talk about Job, because I think this is a place where our culture and our community and us individually have a lot to learn because we struggle in the areas of emotional honesty, grief, and processing death. But there are answers to be found. So let's, let's go into this book where they can be found. Job is what's considered part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's a, along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, one of the three that are considered wisdom literature. 
So Proverbs kind of paints this picture of God being wise, just, and fair, that we essentially get what we deserve. But Ecclesiastes brings up this question of like, is God really wise, just, and fair? And that's the question that Job tackles head on. Oh, nice. It works. So Job is, in fact, disproportionately full of questions. In the 42 chapters of Job, there are 330 questions that are asked. For comparison, Psalms is the longest book of the Bible at 150 chapters, but it only asks 160 questions. So why so many questions in the book of Job? I think it's because the main themes of Job are loss, tragedy, and pain, all of which naturally bring up the question, why or why me? But Job's main question or problem, I don't think, is primarily social, financial, or medical, even though he suffers in all of those areas. The primary thing he's contending with is a spiritual pain. He's wrestling really with his faith and the concept of, is God good? The concept of theodicy. C.S. Lewis, I think, echoes this in his book called The Problem of Pain when he says, the existence of suffering in a world created by a good and almighty God is a fundamental theological dilemma and perhaps the most serious objection to the Christian religion. So let's dive into this question-filled book. Uh, this is a lot, but we'll go through it. The 42 chapters of Job can be organized into sections, and this is an outline that I made with my very basic PowerPoint skills. Um, you'll see the chapters numerically on the bottom. So the first two chapters are the prologue. This is the setting of the stage of the story where we get a behind-the-scenes peek as the reader into circumstances that Job is completely unaware of. Job loses everything in chapters one and two, and then in chapter three, we get Job's opening lament in response to that loss. Then it's thought that a few months go by where he's sitting in excruciating emotional and physical pain before his four friends show up. They then sit in seven days of silence to like mourn with him, and then moving forward from four to 26 is just three cycles of speeches from a couple of those friends. And then there's a poem to wisdom in chapter 28, followed by Job making again another lament or complaint towards God. And then there's another cycle of speeches from the last friend. And it isn't until chapter 38, 38 out of 42, almost the end of the book, that Job actually gets a response from God. The person to whom he's been directing his questions and complaints and pain to is completely silent until the end of the book or at least he sort of gets a response. So going to the beginning of this story, I'm gonna summarize the text that you see on the screen. We are right now outside of Job's perspective or knowledge. It starts in this sort of like heavenly command center where God is meeting with a bunch of angelic creatures and he's flexing, talking about how amazing Job is. Then somebody approaches God, who in Hebrew is named Satan a title meaning the one who is opposed. And he makes the accusation that Job and likely all of humanity is just working the system, saying that people serve God in exchange for earthly blessings and not out of genuine love. And Satan poses an experiment to test that theory. God essentially agrees to the experiment and allows Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And subsequently, we're about to see that Job loses pretty much 
everyone and everything that he cares about. We then change scenes back to earth in Job's perspective as the losses begin to hit one after another. So to summarize verses 14 through 17, Job receives in rapid succession the news that he has lost all of his earthly belongings. His oxen, donkey, sheep, camels, and servants are all killed either by gangs or struck by, quote, the fire of God from heaven. So this would be like if you, tonight or tomorrow morning, log into your Chase app and see all your bank accounts drained to zero, not just zero, negative. And then you go outside the house and your car is gone because it's stolen. And then as you turn back around, you see your house actively burning down. Everything gone in the matter of minutes. Now, in my family growing up, I remember my mom's here. She probably remembers this too. On a few distinct occasions where I incurred financial losses on the family. One being when I dropped our family camera into the ocean. Um, another when I totaled our car driving between Wenatchee and Spokane during the winter. But on both of those occasions, I give credit to them for making me feel better. They emphasize that things are just things and things can be replaced. And what mattered the most to them was that me and my siblings were okay. And you know, despite losing some of the dearest people in my life, as a soon-to-be mom, I cannot even fathom what Job is about to hear next in verse 18. For this next bout of news is not about possessions or wealth, but this. So we read, starting in 18, while he, the messenger, was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Let's pause for a moment here. Job had 10 children. I know not many of us in this room are parents yet, but I do know all of us have lost and all of us have suffered in some form, and many have lost people. I lost three, only one of which was my immediate family, but that alone was enough to shatter my reality. I can't even begin to comprehend this, 10 children. Job is a biblical template for a loss, a place where we can look in the Bible and find our pain reflected. But what comes next in his story is something I don't think many of us could read and see our own reflection in. Starting in verse 20, at this, right after getting the news about his kids, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away, has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So let's pause here again. There's a lot to unpack in Job, but this verse, verse 20, has been the most impactful to me. This is a man who has lost everything and almost everyone. And by the way, it's not even done yet. In the next section, Satan goes back, gets clearance, and is given permission to inflict intense, chronic, physical suffering on Job that leaves him just scraping his skin with broken pottery for months. What is described here is a seemingly 
immediate and almost muscle memory type of response to loss that is astounding. Job expresses some societally normative grief behaviors, the tearing of the clothes, the shaving of his head, but the next verb, that's wild to me. Because I could fill, and I did fill in that blank with quite a number of different verbs. There's things like cry, yell, give up, shut down, withdraw. All those things would fit in here very naturally. But what comes next for him is the verb worship. He is hit by loss. He acknowledges his emotional state, but immediately turns, and as he is falling from the weight of his grief and pain, chooses to fall towards God. And I would argue that it's the direction of the falling, the direction of the emotion, the honest emotion expression that makes this action worship. Not like the happy, yippy, skippy, like, praise God, it's all good, kind of worship that sometimes we see in church, but worship through lamentation. So, look at this picture. This is Job. This is a painting done of him back in 1880. And I want us to sit with it and ask, is there anything in this that makes you feel uncomfortable? I know he's naked, so beyond that, um, I want you to kind of focus on like his face, his facial expression, his body language. This is a little bit hard to sit with, at least it is for me. I'm curious like what comes up for you if you try to sort of enter into this picture a little bit. Because it's common in popular thought to categorize our emotions as either good, things like happiness, or bad, things like pain, anger, sadness, fear, internal experiences that we're either encouraged to inflate or repress because of their perception as being societally comfortable or not. And I think this is something we can all acknowledge on a cultural and personal level, a discomfort with certain emotions in ourselves and with others. We keep each other at like arm's length a lot when we're not feeling happy. So back in the day, there were some philosophers like Plato and the Stoics who basically said that all emotions were bad and the goal of humanity is to rise above them with reason and logic. But then there was other people who came later like Spinoza and Darwin who said, no, 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 each emotion has a purpose and in and of itself is valid because it helps us survive and thrive. So, Take, for example, anger. It's the most villainized of all the emotions and something that Job expresses a lot of in this book. But it's not always a bad thing. It can actually be a positive force if it helps us achieve our goals because it helps us overcome obstacles. So for example, it gives us the courage in certain situations to voice our desires, our needs, our misgivings, or boundaries. The thing that can be negative about it is actually just the anger management style or direction. That's the thing that determines whether it's healthy or not. Because if it has no directional force, it can just spill over onto the people around us. Or if it turns inward, it can lead us to become bitter and isolated. But expressing how you feel can have incredible benefit. To start with, putting emotion into words, expressing how we feel, can change us through brain chemistry. <laughs> This is my uh, med student side coming out. <laughs> so there are essentially these alarm bells in our brains that will go off when we're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, fear, anger, pain. And sometimes they can be so chemically loud that it hijacks the entire brain and paralyzes our body. There's a bunch of studies that they've done that basically support 
that there's a simple way to get out of this. Instead of pushing the emotion away, but allowing ourselves to feel it and name it by either saying it out loud or writing it on a piece of paper, things like, I am scared or I am angry, that very action helps turn down the volume on those alarm bells and allows us to use other parts of our brain to make wise decisions or help us sort of get out of that paralysis and help us connect to others. So that's essentially what this picture is showing, a brain before and after naming an emotion after being shown like a scary situation, having the effect of decreasing the activity in those alarm areas of the brain. So I hope this never happens to you, but theoretically, if there's a bear charging towards you, and in that moment, obviously, your brain's alarm bells are just going off haywire, the emotion might be so strong in that moment that it's going to hijack your brain and body and you won't be able to move. But if you pause for a millisecond to say out loud or internally, I am scared, which you should be, you will actually have a better, uh, better chance of survival. And the same thing goes emotionally. This is what expressing our emotional states, like what Job does through lament, can do for us. But, changing, or, but expressing our emotions doesn't just change ourselves, it also changes those around us. It helps those around us understand what we are feeling and connect with us through empathy. Because the nature of sadness or anger or fear in loss is isolation, loneliness, and a deprivation of connection, the solution for those issues is connectedness with another person or ultimately with God. But how do we connect with God? Have you considered the concept of lament? It's not just expressing emotion, it's doing it in an intentional manner to connect with God. Because while to cry is human, to lament is Christian. It is a prayer expressing sorrow, pain, confusion, anger, fear. It's that falling when we're burdened by loss, but falling towards God so we can be caught by him. We see it again and again in the Bible. There's a whole book called Lamentations, and like one-third of the Psalms are laments. And we also see Job repeatedly crying out, seeking to connect to God through lament. So how do we lament? We can look in the Psalms and Psalms 13 to find out how. So it reads, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So in Psalms 13, we actually find a template for the four elements of lament, which is seen in Job as well. Lament turns towards God when sorrow, anger, fear, all those things tempt you to turn away from him. But it goes beyond that. It honestly cries out to God, it boldly makes appeal, and it chooses to trust. So let's look at this in action. Job laments for the majority of chapters 29 through 31, and 
all of chapter three is just 26 verses of pain-soaked monologue. Earlier in the chapter, before this part, he basically says, I shouldn't have been born if it all led to this moment. And picking up here in verse 24, he paints this wretched picture of constant turmoil. He says, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Like, what do you fear the most? It may not have happened yet, but we are assured in this life that something close to it might. So later in chapters 29 through 31, we also see Job repeatedly appealing to God, crying out against the perceived silence and asking for God to respond. Jesus laments in the final hours of his life, quoting from David in Psalm 22, crying out in what I read as a mixture of grief, fear, and anger, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. There's the turning, there's the honest expression, there's the appeal asking for a response from God. So let's bring it back to Job. Of the 42 chapters of Job, the majority of the dialogue back and forth between friends, which we didn't really have time to go into, it just exemplifies really the human's limited ability and faulty attempts to make sense of the why behind suffering. As the reader, we got to see behind the scenes in chapter one, and we realize that there is so much that Job is left in the dark about. But we're in the dark as well. We, along with Job, are left in this broken world of holocausts, pandemics, prejudice, suicide, cancer. We're just left in the dark trying to make sense of it all. Bring up to your mind the losses that you've suffered and the questions that have been unanswered of the times when you were crying out and there was only silence. And you know what's kind of awful? At the end of Job, when God finally responds to him all the way in chapter 30, or in, yeah, in chapter 38, he neither explains the reason for Job's suffering or defends his justice. It states that like the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and moving forward for the next three chapters, he takes Job on this virtual tour of how complicated the natural wonders of the world are. But you know, it can read, or it reads to me at least, a little bit like God showing up and just throwing his weight around, like overwhelming Job with complexity, like, a, like an adult telling a child, like, it's too complicated, you wouldn't understand. And honestly, that upsets me. It upset me when I was reading through Job after my dad died, and it upsets me now. I want for Job, and I want for me, and I want for you to get a direct answer. And like I taught you earlier, I'm gonna name this right now, I'm angry about that. <laughs> and it's helpful for me to tell myself and to tell God that I'm angry that we don't get those answers. So if we don't get answers to these questions, and when we cry out to God, when we make appeals, and when we lament, what do we get? 
And that's the question I asked myself alone in my studio apartment, sitting on my bed after watching the upteenth movie about loss, crying out to God. And it's only when you get to the very end of the book of Job in chapter 42, verse 5, that it hit me like a ton of bricks. 42, verse 5, Job says, my eyes or my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. We don't necessarily get an answer. Sometimes we do, but we don't always. But what we do get is the assurance of God's presence. And that, that in and of itself is an answer. In those nights during my first year in med school, as I was trying to grieve and feel, as I was angry and sad and scared, I had a firm sense that God was nearby, that he was present in the midst of that pain and that confusion. We get a God who is with us in our pain, a God who showed up for Daniel in the lion's den, for Samson at the end of his life, a God who weeps for us, with us like he did for the family of Lazarus, and a God who shows up in your life even when it's silent. There's this amazing poet and hymn writer called William Cowper, a long time ago. He had a bit of Job echoing in his own struggles with depression and suicidality. And he wrote a poem which was later converted to him based around his experience with silence. And this passage from John 13, verses 7, in which there's a promise from God that one day, though maybe not in this life, he will make it clear. When he told his disciples, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So let me read you a little snippet of that. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, I would encourage you to open up the book of Job, read the last chapter, because God does restore Job in many ways, in terms of his health, his possessions. He blesses him with more children. They say the, like, I don't know, the guys were stronger, the girls were prettier, something like that. But at the end of the day, Job still lost 10 family members. In my own life, after that season of loss, loss, I've been richly blessed in family, a family that's growing. But I would imagine that Job, like me, continued to battle with certain questions that weren't answered. And he likely had to continue lamenting his losses over the course of his life. He had to continue being honest with God and turning to him over and over with that grief and confusion. For again, while to cry is human, to lament is Christian. Now the band is going to be leading us in a song written by another Job-like character, Horatio Spafford. So as they come up, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background about this guy. He's a man who lost his first, his four-year-old son from scarlet fever, and then his four daughters in a shipwreck. Notice the lament and assurance of God's presence that he has that's interwoven into those lyrics, which he penned on his journey after receiving that news. In fact, 
He may have written this, it said, as the ship was passing over the place where his daughters drowned. Imagine Horatio's pain and how he had to learn the practice of lament until he got to this place of trust to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So as the band is starting this, I invite you to pull, as you sing these words, into your mind your own loss, just as I will mine. And check in with your body to notice what areas are heavy or tight or pressured, and check in to see what emotion is sitting with you. And I'm gonna ask you to do something uncomfortable, to not push it away or hold it down, but to hold it and name it. And as the band plays this, if you feel a deep sorrow of lament, I would invite you, whether it's silently where you are, or if you wanna kneel, or if you wanna come forward, to do so, but to enter into that turning towards God being honest in your cry out to him to make the appeal and to state your position of trust to enter into lament. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.